Uh, hi everyone. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming and for the invitation. I uh, I've been doing work with the uh, the Oxford Transition Justice Research already for a few years since Bill Clark was here uh, with SLX and with others at York University, etc. We've been trying to do a lot of work on TJ, and I've learned a good deal from members of the Oxford Transition Justice Research. So thank you so much, and I do hope that you keep the work ongoing. It's, it's really worth it. Um, so I'm going to talk today about preparations for victims of mass atrocities, and I would like to reflect on some key challenges. Uh, I am an academic, uh, but I do a lot of practical work, because working on reparations requires that you put your hands on the issues. And you can do it in different ways, either by uh, being involved with governments, trying to help them to design transitional justice frameworks that are good for victims, and that means also that provide preparation to victims. So I was saying to Ivo that, for example, now I am uh, helping and thinking about how this is going to happen in Mexico. This is one of the new cases. Um, so lots of challenges there. But I also believe in mitigation, uh, so I do try to, to see how I can expand the horizon of preparation through litigation. And in my academic practical work, uh, I am currently involved in two projects. One is an ESRC uh, funded project called the Human Rights Law Implementation Project, where we are trying to see what hinders or helps the implementation of orders or recommendations given by international bodies at the UN or regional uh, tribunals or commissions like the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, European Court, the African Court, or commissions uh, in individual cases. And there we are mapping a lot what is happening with cases that have a transitional flavor to them and of course involve preparation for victims of mass atrocities. And my other project is an EHRC-funded uh, project where we are trying to look at victimhood preparation and responsibility uh, with other universities. And we are looking at uh, six cases around the world uh, in relation to reparations, including countries like Uganda, Nepal, Northern Ireland, Colombia, Peru, and Guatemala. Uh, we've been doing in all of these projects, in these two projects, we've been doing field work, we've been interviewing victims, we've been interviewing relevant stakeholders. Uh, we have really secured very good data that allows us to, to show some of the problems. I want to share with you uh, some of the reflections we have so far. Uh, and I would love to hear uh, whether you are thinking about these issues or whether you have any ideas that can help us to move some of these issues forward. Uh, I will now. Still working? It's, sorry, here. Yeah. No, it's very moving. Our sorry. interface, although being very, no. very young. Okay, Let me just, see. Okay, just focus, okay. please. So, uh, reparation. You know, we can start talking about the right to reparation just thinking, I could go further back in time, but if you think about the concentration camps, the types of crimes that took place there, you know, slavery, uh, full deprivation, full exploitation, uh, that's a form of, of mass atrocity. Uh, we have one more contemporary one, which is the amount of refugees on IDPs, uh, for example, from Syria. We are talking about more than 12 million people, half and half refugees, half uh, IDPs. And I think this picture is particularly revealing because it captures the massivity of the issue. And behind each one of these individuals, 
there is a whole history of harm uh, that we need to grapple with, that we need to think how can law, society, transitional justice respond to that. Uh, and I think the challenge when I see this picture, I, I, I feel really overwhelmed. Uh, I, I find it difficult to, to find answers. Uh, and when we start looking, this is again Syria, and these are the chemical uh, attacks in Syria. We start thinking about children and the way this can affect the whole horizon of life of these children. Uh, again, puts various questions on the table about what is harm, how do we deal with that. Again, uh, something that is pivotal in our heads uh, because it symbolizes also the atrocities that have happened in Europe, uh, Serenita, uh, and of course Rwanda. The, the clothes there, the, the massivity of, of how they have exterminated uh, groups of people uh, is there. And this is Plan de Sanchez in Guatemala. Uh, again, how, you know, this is, this is the drawing uh, of a child about what happened in the massacre of Plan de Sanchez, how they remember that, how they remember the military arriving, uh, you know, bombarding, killing. Uh. Yeah, so it's in a way, what my work does is to deal with the dark side uh, of humanity and brings harm to the table and makes us think really hard about how we can achieve resilience, how can we empower victims, how can we recover what was taken away from them. Uh, so I just want to bring this picture just to, to warm you into the subject and just to say that there are millions of victims awaiting redress around the world. So I just mentioned 12 million in relation to Syria. We have just, in terms of refugees and IDPs, 65 million around the world. 65 million IDPs and refugees. I'm not talking about all the other forms of mass atrocities that are happening. So it's a really worrying number, really worrying. And the fact is that not many of them have received anything at all, or if they have, it's something really minimum. And we have to also ask for the impact that 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 we are doing for them has in their lives, in societies, in our communities, etc. So important steps have been taken uh, during the last five, six, six decades to try to give shape to the right to reparation under international law. We have had a long-standing recognition of the right to reparation that one state owes to another state but to talk about reparation owed by the state to individuals is another story. And on that story, we are actually, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's six decades, five decades, that we've been writing that story, legally speaking and in practice. The other story about interstate reparations is far longer, uh, centuries really. Uh, and I think we are beginning to, to see the challenges really uh, to take note of what we've learned through experience, uh, but we still have to see how we're going to make a real difference for victims. Uh, that's the problem for me. How can we have a real impact? Uh, and today, because of that massive gap that we have between what the law says, the law says to us under international human rights law, for example, that victims have a right to an adequate, prompt, and effective remedy and reparation for the harm suffered as a result of human rights violations. Uh, but between that beautiful wording and the reality, there is a massive gap, massive, 
and the need to address it if the whole objective of transitional justice is really to help society to move forward, if what we want is to recover generations that have been lost, if what we want is to build societies that can believe in the rule of law and reconciliation. So there is a part of the story in transitional justice that tends to be undermined, and that is the story about the victims. We tend to think about the perpetrators, we tend to think about those in power, but we usually forget about what do we do with those that have had to pay the high price for the atrocities. And those are the victims. Uh, I don't want to portray them as passive subjects, because through my work what I've seen is that they are incredibly powerful, they are incredibly resilient, and I actually think that some of the steps we've been able to give forward uh, in the fight for a right reparation is a result of the amazing work they've done. Yes? Uh, but we cannot leave them alone. So I want to discuss five key challenges. The first challenge is what I call a challenge in relation to the normative dimension of reparation. I think we all talk about the right to reparation, and when one looks at the literature on the right to reparation, people like Paolo Legrave have tried to explore nicely uh, why we need a right to reparation, but also why transitional justice is about imperfect justice. And he says to us, for example, that we need reparation uh, in an imperfect justice world uh, where we won't be able to give every victim what they should get uh, because that's the way to build trust, to, be, to build recognition, to build respect, to reincorporate them somehow in society. And I find these ideas quite powerful, but I still believe that we haven't taken them to where we can. So I think that from a normative perspective, we need a better justification as to why reparation matters. I think that uh, we haven't given the final word to a state as to why reparation matters. One problem we have with states and with other actors that would have a, an influential role in shaping reparations is that we haven't given them a good reason as to why they should do it. Of course, they have committed a serious international crime, there is a wrong that needs to be redressed, but I think that we can come up with other uh, justifications as to why redressing victims matters. So I believe that there is an important gap from a normative perspective on why we should do it. Yes, and I think we need to explore this, and we need to explore this not uh, only in relation to, for example, how does work, but also, for example, from a religious point of view. We need to be able to understand what harm means across different religions, what pardon means across different religions, what is reparation from different uh, religious perspectives. We need to be able to inform normatively this concept of reparation, bearing in mind uh, different ideological uh, views about, about life, society, communities, etc. I think we are not quite there yet. So this is an area where, for example, academia can definitely play an important role. And this is not only for lawyers, this is for philosophers, this is for sociologists, this is for archaeologists. I think that a lot of work needs to be done that is of a multidisciplinary nature if we really want to move these uh, issues forward. Uh, I move to one where I feel far more confident because I am a lawyer by training, and is the international legal framework. So as I said to you, we have moved quite ahead on the game in terms of defining that there is a right to reparation. But when you look at the international instruments, and you look even at the jurisprudence of various international tribunals about what reparation is, 
there are still questions. So I mentioned to you just before these three magic adjectives, you know, prompt, adequate, and effective. But if you asked to me what is adequate, well, I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you this is the definition of adequate. I have to grapple with this question on a permanent basis, and I have to appeal to various things to try to give meaning to that concept. So on issues like that, we are not quite there yet. Yes, uh, we are not quite there yet, for example, also in relation to what kind of harms are we meant to redress. And there is a whole discussion in transitional justice as to whether you should have reparation, a right to reparation, for mass atrocities that only include civil and political rights and some civil and political rights, or whether it actually should include violations of economic, social, and cultural, and I like cultural rights. Yes, that's a big discussion. And if you look in the law, you don't really find direct answers to that. What is a mass atrocity? What classifies as a crime against humanity is only violations of human rights that are of a civil and political rights nature, or can we actually talk about deprivation of the right to food, deprivation of potable water, uh, you know, lack of education, etc. Think about the Syria picture. There we are talking about not only violations of civil and political rights, you know, right to human treatment, for example, right to life. But we are also talking about education. Imagine the children that cannot go to school and won't be able to even see a school for I don't know how many years to come, or to have food, or to go to a health center to have access to adequate uh, health, uh, which is also a right. So there we have very important questions. Uh, how far do we go once we make choices? as to who should receive preparation. Who are the beneficiaries? Is it only individual victims? Who classifies as a victim? Is it uh, the person who directly suffered the violation? Or are we going to say that also, for example, some members of the family might also be part of that victimhood uh, world? Uh, what about community members? How do we take into account cultural issues to actually try to define who can claim to be a victim? Uh, so I think it's in areas like this, and I could mention to you a hundred questions that from a legal point of view we have. Another very important one, for example, for under humanitarian law, we are moving to the laws of war, we don't have that much certainty about whether there is a right to reparation. We have quite a strong ground under international human rights law, but not under humanitarian law. And what is the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that today, that we face more than ever conflicts that involve not a state against the state, although we have a few, but basically a states fighting guerrilla movements, armed groups, etc. Well, armed groups might not necessarily have an obligation to provide reparation. Look at what I'm saying, yes? So there is a strong consequence of us not taking the law further to see how we can use the law to actually be able to claim reparations. And, and that, for example, would mean that in a country like my own country, the FARC or the ELN uh, or paramilitary groups, for example, uh, might then end up with their hands clean because they actually might say there is no obligation to provide reparations. Not for us. There is one for the state, but not for us. Yes? Practice is beginning to challenge that. In the case of Colombia, for example, the FARC themselves under the peace agreement uh, accepted after a lot of confrontation that they were going to give up some of their war assets to actually repair victims. So this is a fantastic precedent. And we see how practice begins to 
uh, have an impact on how the law will evolve. And of course, we need the state practice. We need uh, uh, opinion juries on these issues too. But we also need more non-armed groups doing this so that we can actually claim that there is also an obligation there. But this is just to mention a few of the challenges we face under international law uh, to, to fully define the problem. And I will just conclude there with saying, while we have been able to recognize the right, I think many questions remain as to what is the scope and the breach of the right. That's how I would praise uh, the, the issue. And there you, you can identify that the many consequences of, of the statement. There is a third one uh, that for me uh, is quite important and is the lack of a solid and coherent international domestic system systems uh, to articulate and protect the right to reparation. And what do I mean there? And maybe I'm going to go to uh, here, to this picture. And, and here I just try to depict some of what we have. So today, we, we have created an international system. I'm thinking about the UN, I'm thinking about the regional systems, the Council of Europe, the Organization of American States, the African Union, and you name them. Because we believe that these mechanisms are key to maintain peace and security, but also to promote human rights. They are meant to have a pivotal role in helping to, to ensure that people can enjoy their rights. And within these mechanisms, we have also been able to, for example, set up the International Criminal Court, but we also have domestic systems. And for me, uh, it has always drawn my attention how do we create a coherent system uh, where one can actually help the other. The international can help the domestic. And of course, under international law, we have different principles that try to help us to resolve that issue. Yes, and issues, for example, like subsidiarity, complementarity, are meant to kick in to help us harmonize the systems. But in my work, what I am identifying is that subsidiarity and complementarity are not always working in the best interest of the right to reparation. And I will give you some examples in a moment. And actually, we have, if, if I could draw a rose here, I think we have like a lot of tensions between different mechanisms. One, within the domestic system itself, but also between the domestic system and the international, and also within the international. And I think this picture depicts it quite well. We all want to get to the right to reparation. There are different ways to get to it, yes? Uh, but we will cross each other. It's not like we've been able to come up with a good solution as to how best to, to, to reconcile the different mechanisms we have at hand. And this might sound uh, quite, uh, I want to go up now, uh, yeah, uh, this might sound a bit esoteric, but let me give you an example. When the domestic system fails to provide reparation to victims, we say that victims can go internationally, yes, because they didn't have adequate or effective remedies domestically, yeah? Then you go internationally, and in a transitional justice setting, this is happening. And, and I'm, I'm going to talk about Colombia, because I think that the case of Colombia uh, is really showing us where we are heading in the future. So I want to have a vision here. And it's this. Uh, Colombia set up a very important domestic reparation program. And domestic reparation programs are the way how transitional societies 
tend to address reparations for victims because uh, you can, it's very difficult to repair victims through the, through the judiciary because we're talking about millions of victims, very expensive procedures, very high standards of evidence, etc. So you create administrative mechanisms to try to redress victims. Uh, Colombia has created one that is on paper uh, very, very comprehensive and very aspirational. Yes? Uh, but we have in Colombia uh, about 8 million victims, out of which 7.2 are IDPs. Uh, the amount of victims that have been redressed through that domestic reparation program has been about 800,000. So it's about 10% of the victims uh, in Colombia that have been redressed. Uh, and about 28% of the victims uh, that have gone through the land restitution process have received any kind of land restitution in the country. And this is one of the most uh, well-built reparation programs, but as you can see, the gap between what they've done and what they should do is quite massive here. And we've been implementing the, the law already for more than uh, five years. Yes. So questions remain, and, and the law will end up in 2023. I think that's the, the, the deadline for reparations for 8 million victims. But anyway, because domestically victims have not been able to achieve reparation, victims are going internationally to the inter-American system, in particular, to claim reparation, to claim, I have, for all the violations I suffered, I have a right to adequate reparation. And what I am getting in Colombia through the domestic reparation program is not adequate. It doesn't respond to international standards. Yes? So we have cases already like Verena La Esperanza, Genesis, etc., decided by the Inter-American Court dealing with the issue. But what we are seeing is, again, a, a, a clash. No? Some victims manage to get internationally to these mechanisms, and they might get not necessarily at the moment, but they might get better reparations that they get at the domestic level. Yeah? But the majority of victims do not have the resources or will not be able to get in touch with the right lawyers to be able to advocate a case internationally, and they will have to go domestic, and they will have to wait for as long as they have to to see if they will get any reparation. That logic is already creating two types of victims. Yes? And it's already creating harm in my way. It's damaging the possible expectations we can have about a holistic system that can provide redress to victims. But yet again, what we are getting then at the court, at least with cases like Hennessy's, was a court that said, I am very respectful of your efforts domestically, and I actually believe that victims should go back to the domestic system and try to get reparation domestically. So we get the most amazing court of reparations worldwide, because that's the Inter-American Court. If there is a jurisprudence that is rich in terms of reparation, <coughs> not without problems, but rich, important, that really has set the ground on the issue, is that of the Inter-American Court. We have that court saying to us, go back domestically. And I think that's also terrible, because why did we create this higher instance, we created it precisely to address failures of the states to deal with reparation or with any other violation as they should. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a difficult logic. Other cases that have come out after Hennessy's, like Verde la Esperanza, 
uh, are a bit more um, mindful of probably what they did in Genesis, because one, they are seeing that Colombia is not doing what we have been told the program does, but also uh, because I think they also notice that they need to be a bit more victim sensitive. Uh, and what they are trying to do now is they move the discussion to evidence. So all is going to be placed on the ground of evidence. Provide me the evidence and I will decide. And that way the court is kind of avoiding uh, the question. But this question that I call coexistence of mechanisms, yes, is happening also at other various levels. Just think, for example, about uh, the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court also has a mandate to award reparations to victims uh, for the crimes it has jurisdiction, uh, over which it has jurisdiction. Uh, but at the same time, in those states, there might already be a reparation program happening. Yes? And then you have questions. And for example, uh, I, I was involved in the Benfa case, uh, advising the court, I was one of the experts advising the court on, on reparation before we knew that Benfa was going to be acquitted. But uh, for me, one of the striking things is to think about, uh, this is the Central African Republic, and in the Central African Republic, you have had various waves of violence. Uh, Benfa was one. Bemba and, and the uh, Movimiento Liberación Congolese was one, but uh, there have been others uh, after that one. No? And one of the big questions we had when we went there was, well, now you are thinking about reparation and you want to bring reparation to Bemba's victims, but the truth is that now we have new forms of harm, new violations, we need to deal with the new wave. We don't need to think anymore about the old one. And then you start getting all of these systems, one that supersedes another, trying to deal with reparation and probably sending conflicting messages. So there is a question as to how we can best deliver reparations that do no harm to victims. For me, the concern is how not to do harm to victims. We cannot put communities uh, in danger. No? And for example, I go back to the image I was showing you about Plan de Sanchez, uh, quite at the beginning. Um, in Plan de Sanchez, this one, this has been one of the most emblematic cases decided by the Inter-American Court in 2004-2005. Uh, it concerns uh, the massacre of more than 268 people in Plata in Sanchez, a small village. Uh, the orders given by the court were amazing, really, you know, from individual forms of reparation, including, for example, 5,000 as pecuniary damage for each victim, 20,000 as moral damages for each victim, including non-identifiable victims that could be potentially identified, including uh, the giving 20,000 for the construction of a, of a church for to pay tribute to those who died, uh, to housing, sewage system, water, roads. Uh, so from individual to collective reparation to development-like reparations. Uh, it, it, it is a really uh, fascinating case. I visited earlier this year massacre of Plan, well, Plan de Sanchez to talk about the massacre with uh, the survivors and to see with my eyes what has happened after the decision uh, was handed down by the court in 2004-2005. And what you actually find is uh, divisions in the community. 
because some victims have received reparation through the domestic reparation program in Guatemala, others through the Inter-American Court. Yes, and now there is even a broader issue here because there is a, a, a dam called the Chicxoy Dam built not very far from Plan de Sanchez uh, where many corporations were involved, the World Bank was involved, etc. And in this case, a, a special agreement was signed because the World Bank pushed for it and the US Congress pushed for it uh, with US money to pay reparation to victims. And this is a special agreement. So you have three systems of reparation coexisting. The Chicxoy Dam, the Plan de Sanchez case, and the domestic uh, reparation program in Guatemala, all giving different things to victims that suffer similar, if not the same, harm. And this, this is a question. How do we address this? Because these are victims that have to live on a daily basis together. What is the message we are sending them? Yes? What is the role of the states when designing these reparation policies, when sitting down to negotiate something like the Chicxoy Dam Agreement? How should we address this? And when you see, for example, that all at the moment is going towards the Chicxoy Agreement, uh, you know, the, the key office in Guatemala dealing with this, which is called Coprede, most of the people working at the office are meant to be dealing with the implementation of the Chicxoy Agreement, but all other issues like the National Preparation Program, the domestic program, just uh, are lost. They are not a priority. Uh, so these issues of coexistence are a key question uh, in relation to which I think we need answers. And I would hope that what is like in the American court uh, would take this question very seriously and would help us to, to deal with it uh, in the future. Uh, there is another one, and it's the multi and interdisciplinary work, uh, I would say, gap we have, working on transitional justice, but also working on reparation. Uh, one key form of reparation, in my view, is rehabilitation for victims. Uh, rehabilitation for victims is understood in many occasions as providing physical and mental health to victims, but it's not only about mental or physical health. It could be about vocational services, education, uh, legal services, etc. Uh, but we lawyers that are the ones dealing with these issues do not really fully capture the meaning of rehabilitation. So my personal view is that if we really want to make rehabilitation effective for victims, rehabilitation that is capable of habilitating victims, we really need to start thinking in a multidisciplinary way and we need to bring on board people that can help us design that. So a domestic operation program in many occasions includes rehabilitation services. But who are the ones designing these services? In many occasions are, you know, bureaucrats, lawyers, but not, we are not involved in the Ministry of Health, we are not involved in the Ministry of Education, we are not involved in the Ministry of Housing. I think we need to, to let others understand that transitional justice is not that transitional at the end, yes? And that institutions that somehow we see as non-transitional play a pivotal transitional role. Yes? So these bodies that will remain in place, executing policies or public policies for the next 20 to 30 years, uh, will need to play a role. And if we let them out of the, of the conversation, I, I don't think that we will maximize the potential of, of our work. 
And the final point would be about prompt reparation. This is an area that worries me a lot, uh, and is this. When we get to a transitional context, uh, many years have passed already since the actual first violations took place. Yes? The killings, the disappearances, the torture, the food deprivation, uh, the sexual violence, uh, you name it. And then you put the transitional justice agenda, but even we see the transitional justice agenda, we tend to prioritize other pillars of transitional justice. Justice. The first one, uh, truth. Uh, preparation comes third or fourth, and the guarantees of non-repetition. And certainly there is a, a very close connection between guarantees of non-repetition and reparation, uh, of course. So how can we provide victims prompt preparation. They really urgently need it. Let me give you an example. Uh, in, in the case of the Central African Republic, the victims of sexual violence we interviewed from Bemba, from Bemba's uh, people. 2002-2003, this happened between October 2002 and March 2003. The MLC, Bemba's men, get inside Bandi and various areas around Bandi and they they killed, they raped, they committed pillage. Uh, there were women and men who were raped by gangs of people, five, six rapes in one go, in front of their children, uh, their gynecological systems, being reproductive systems being completely destroyed. Many of these victims contracted AIDS uh, or other uh, sexual diseases. We visited last year, uh, the, in, in September, the, the Central African Republic. And for me, one thing that was absolutely clear was these, particularly the women we talked to, were like dead in life. Dead in life. Fifteen years had gone by with no reparation. Just a few years back, they began to receive some antiretroviral medication, not because of the Central African Republic, but because of medicine some frontier was reaching to them if they were lucky not to be killed by any of the militias in the country. Yes? But these women could have, could have had another story if we had been there earlier, if we had been able to look after their reproductive systems, to provide them with the medical and mental health they needed, to fight a stigma, for example, that comes out as a consequence of, of sexual violence, and that is strong. Many of the displays during Benoit actually were the result of women or men being sexually abused uh, during the conflict and having to move away from their communities because they were ostracized by their own people. So it's like that victimization, one that comes from that are the perpetrator and another one that comes from your community, yes? So how can we give a, a prompt answer to these victims? I, I am convinced that we, if we had acted in a case like this years back, some of these women would have a different life today, already a different life expectancy, because they would have been able to, to fight AIDS. Their, their, their life today is very different. And I put this example because I think it's very illustrative of what I'm talking about. So how can we provide something called urgent reparation? How can we 
turn, for example, some kind of humanitarian assistance into some form of preparation. I think we need more dialogue there. I don't want to get rid of preparation. I think it's a right, yes? But I think we need to think very carefully as to how best to have that first intervention, timely intervention, empowering intervention that would allow victims, for example, to claim justice. A victim that has her reproductive system completely destroyed is a victim that cannot go to a court. The last thing that person will ever think is about going to a court. That victim is thinking about how not to lose his or her children because she's being called a vajamlenge because she was raped by one of the, of the guys on the other side. Yes? So I think it's, it's a crucial issue. There we have a massive question. And in context like what we are seeing today, think about Syria. Yes? And displacement, uh, massive displacement. How do we deal with that? And is it possible to even consider how to provide prompt preparation in a situation where what we are dealing with is a diaspora, it's a full diaspora? And maybe that takes me to my last point that is not here, but is the issue about displacement and refugees. And, and I began with that, 65 million refugees and IDPs in the world. When we think about preparation, we were transitioning from uh, authoritarian regimes into democracy, the Argentina, the Chilean case, uh, for example, we were talking about 1% of the population being victimized and we have to deal with that victimization. And actually, Chile or Argentina came up with interesting domestic reparation programs that actually delivered. When you look at the implementation of those programs, the, the, the actual implementation is pretty high. A very accomplished, particularly the Chilean, and I have litigated against the Chilean one, uh, because of refugees, because that's where the problem was. In a case like Chile, for example, uh, we always believed that the majority of victims were the killed and the disappeared, but actually the majority of victims of Pinochet's regime were tortured survivors. Yes? Uh, we're talking about more than 50,000, and the amount of refugees that came out from Chile was massive. We have them in our universities at Essex. I have plenty of Chilean colleagues who had to run away from Chile and who were giving uh, asylum in the UK and now are academics there, for example. So uh, I think these people didn't really get what for me means adequate reparation. So it already shows us a gap in those cases. But if we now move to post-conflict situation or conflict situation, because now we are doing transitional justice in conflict situations, the question is even harder. In the case of Colombia, we are trying to provide operation to about 15% of the population. So we move from 1% to 15. In the case of Syria, we're going to be talking about 20% of the population. And what Syria doesn't have that Colombia has is a bit, uh, Syria doesn't have a strong institutions. Yes, because there is a question also about the capability of the system to provide operation, to operationalize them. And, and in the case of Syria, we also need to think about the transnational institutional framework to be able to create a mechanism capable of dealing with reparations for refugees and IDPs. We don't have that. We don't have that. And usually, it's the question that you omit. How do we repair or redress IDPs and refugees? And I think here we need to start thinking about more in a more global manner. I don't know if a global fund, I don't know how to create partnerships between the states. Not easy at all. In the, in, in the case, uh, we litigated with redress against Chile, Garcia Lucero. One of, the, one of the 
it should be put on the table was for actually Chile to come up with an agreement with the United Kingdom to provide reparation to persons like Mr. Garcia Lucero, who lives in the UK. And they were saying, no, if he wants that, then we need to go back. So which is unsinkable, and unsinkable even more in contexts like the Syria one. So maybe I just would conclude saying, I believe that the gap between what the law says and what we all aspire to for victims and reality is massive, is massive. I believe that it's very important to redress victims because they are a key agent of social change, yes? Uh, we keep reproducing uh, dynamics of violence, of difference, uh, of hate, of, you know, of oppression, uh, if we don't open our hands really to those that really need it, to recognize the harm they have suffered and to try to, to vindicate their rights. I think it's absolutely crucial for a society uh, to do that. And I've learned from experience also seeing victims that the resilience that victims have is far stronger than the resilience of any other one uh, if they are not fully destroyed. And this is what I saw in the Central African Republic with some women. I saw, I saw well, some women I, I will never forget because she couldn't stop looking through the window when we were talking to her, but she couldn't, her face was absolutely flat. It, it was a person who had lost like, her soul. And I wonder whether that soul would ever come back. But I did see another woman in the Central African Republic who one of the key uh, civil society fighters there who lost her husband, who was raped herself, her daughters were raped, who is actually empowering all the other women to move forward, to fight for justice, to fight for reparation, doing all that she can to try to help others. So when I think about that resilience, I think that there is something very important there in society to, to move ahead. Yes, to help reconstruct the, the social texture, to think about regaining social trust, uh, respect, etc. So I think I, I leave it there, and I'm very happy to take any questions or comments. Or I'm going to stop the recorder now for the Q&A session.